0: Well, we start a new series, like A.J. said, called Aftermath today, and so if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Ephesians chapter four, and the whole concept of this series, Aftermath, is based on the year that we've had, the aftermath of 2020, and I I believe that in the aftermath of 2020, everything looks different, everything looks different after the year that we went through together. Normally, this is the time of the year that, that we do New Year's resolutions, and as a church, we might do a series on some practices or priorities for the year to come, you know, basic stuff, right? Read your Bible more, pray more, all the stuff that we all want to do all the time, and yet I feel like after the year that we've had, it feels a little trite to do that kind of series, just a checkbox priorities and practices series. And normally, this time of year, maybe you've got some resolutions, right? You're going to lose five pounds by Easter time or summer swimsuit season, right? You're going to pick up a new hobby or make a, learn a different language, something like that. And those are all great things, right? All of these things are great things. But in the current climate of our culture and in the current world in which we live and of the aftermath of the year that we've come from, all of these things that normally seem so important in January seem a little... Simple, basic, uh, unimportant in the grand scheme of things. So today as we embark on this new series, I wanna look for something a little loftier. Now I read an article a few weeks back uh, by a man named Donald Miller who's a Christian author and he was talking about making New Year's resolutions that stick and he said, uh, I'll read you the quote, Miller says that most people don't stick with their New Year's resolutions but it's not because they lack the resolve. Miller's claim is it's because their goals are not embedded in the context of a narrative. He goes on to explain that if we really want to make resolutions that change our lives, that stick, that change us for good, we have to play a part in a bigger story. We have to believe that these resolutions are going to alter the fabric of our lives in some way. They have to be grandiose enough that we want to step into them and carry them out to completion. So, as we start this series, I'm going to start with a simple question for you about the story that God might have for you this year. You can write this question now. We're going to come back to it in various forms throughout the series. Here's the question What is the story that you want to see God write in your faith in 2021? Or what is the story that you want to see God write in your faith in 2021? Or if there's a newspaper headline about your life at the end of this year, what would it say? right? Man reads Bible almost every day for 365 days. Like, that's good. But is that the headline for your life 12 months from now? Woman attends online church. Person signs up for small group. Is that going to be the grand vision for your life? I believe that all those things are great things and those should be part of our lives. And I believe that as we look at the calling of God in the scriptures, God has called us to something more substantial as people than the things that we normally might run after at this time of year. Did you know the word calling shows up 700 times in the Old Testament where God calls someone, he opens their mouth and speaks a new part of their lives into existence. Right? We turn to the pages of the New Testament and we see the same concept, the same word coming out again, calling. God calls people to himself, to faith in Jesus Christ. God calls them to participate in his kingdom, his redemptive plan for humanity. It's a grandiose thing what God has called us to be. You as we look at this book of Ephesians, it was written by the Apostle Paul, and Paul had three different ways that he uses the word calling in his writing. He talked about the general calling that all of us have to become a Christian. God has called us to follow Jesus. Paul also talks about our calling to participate in God's kingdom as citizens of his kingdom, his kingdom work, the character, the outpouring of his kingdom. And finally, Paul says that God has called us, men and women and kids from every background and language and culture and economic class imaginable. He's called us to be a community of faith in Jesus. This is calling according to the Apostle Paul. And so the verse that I wanna start with is Ephesians 4, verse one. If you have your Bibles, you can look at it right now. This is a verse you can put on your fridge as you think about a grand calling for next year. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You know, I think that is a good verse for your fridge. I think the reason it might be hard to put it up there right now is because we need to take some time and dive into this text and ask God and ask the Apostle Paul, what does that mean? What does it look like to live a life on mission with God in that calling that he has described. And so in the verses that follow, the Apostle Paul shows us what it means to live a life worthy of the grand and beautiful calling that God has put on our lives. So Ephesians four, here we go. Now the first few words that we see in this verse one here is Paul says, as a prisoner of the Lord then. And we're reminded that Paul is writing this letter from prison, that he is someone who is in chains. He's unable to live out the fullness in a sense of God's calling on his own life. Now I was imagining what, What could Paul say to these people who's now he's in chains? He can't do the work. He can't be there to pastor them. He can't be there to urge them in person. What are the words that follow? Is it share the gospel? Is it plant more churches? Is it participate in God's amazing life, world-changing mission? What are the words that come out of Paul's mouth when he describes what it means to live a life worthy of their calling? Here's what he says. He says, be completely humble. And gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. If you're taking notes at home, you want to type something in your phone or write something on your fridge or something, write this down. This is the first thing we see in this passage. God has called you to build beautiful, dynamic relationships with other believers. God has called you to build beautiful, dynamic relationships with other believers. That's the substance of Paul's calling on the life of the churches that are, that are reading this letter in, in Ephesus. Now this is an actually a, a pretty subversive topic in the Greco-Roman world. Humility, bearing with people, serving folks, living in submissive relationships was not seen as a virtue to the Greek and Roman people, right? Humility was almost a vice. You were supposed to be in authority, you were supposed to have power, you were supposed to have machismo, you were supposed to lord authority over people, you were supposed to show your strength by being someone who is domineering and aggressive. The last thing you're supposed to be, if you're a Greek or a Roman person, is humble, submissive, bearing with other people, slowing down to serve other people. And yet Paul says, this is what it looks like to live a life worthy of God's calling on you. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like for us, we don't have that, that same dynamic. We know that humility is beautiful. We know that long-suffering is a, a wonderful attribute for Christians. And I think that this, this command that Paul gives is a little subversive for people who live in our culture. This is a vision that Paul gives us of being involved in community at a deep level. And we here in America, as part of our culture, we are not a community-oriented culture, right? We're very independent. We're very self-sufficient. We value autonomy. We don't like slowing down and bearing with others, right? Think about all the pushback from our country as we started talking about mask wearing and sheltering in place and brokering back or governing back your freedom so that others might have safety. We push back at that. We do not like to live and sacrifice ourselves in a way that brings health and brings honors to others. We love to be autonomous. We want to be these John Wayne people, right? That's the American way. And yet the other part of the American way that we may have discovered in this last year is the American way is a very lonely way. Now, this has been a year, 2020, where I feel like people have realized that they are starving for life-giving relationships with other people, maybe for the first time. You know, a study that came out in 2018 uh, from The Economist and the Kaiser Foundation looked at loneliness in our country, and they found that 22% of American adults always feel lonely. That's how they describe their lives. 46% of Americans always or sometimes feel alone. And 54% of Americans say they always or sometimes feel that no one knows them well. That was before COVID-19, right? On the other side of COVID, loneliness has more than doubled, especially among older Americans. And if you don't consider yourself old, these are not my words, in the study, it was 50 plus, right? People 50 plus, loneliness almost doubled. In fact, 56% of adults over the age of 50 say they're lonelier now than they were before the pandemic. And you know that loneliness is the number one fear, according to studies of millennials, being alone, dying alone, living alone, having no one, no community to partner as you live through life. We are a very independent people, a very self-sufficient people. But man, one of the things we learned last year is that we are alone and lonely and starving for community that brings life to our bones. And so Paul says, th- this is what you need to do. You need to live a life worthy of your calling, be humble and gentle, and then tells a little bit about what the, the background of what this looks like. He says in verse four, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one, one you hear all these words, One, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You know, one of the things that Paul is trying to draw out here is the oneness that we are called to have as believers in Jesus Christ. You know, for, we talked about a little bit of the Greek Roman world. From a, in a Jewish world, in a Jewish believing context, uh, w- unity and oneness, the oneness of God was a concept they were very familiar with. I think of Deuteronomy chapter 6, a prayer that, that the Hebrew people would pray every single day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet the oneness, as experienced by the Jewish community in Paul's day, was a oneness that was oneness that was pretty monolithic, right? There is one God and we are his people. There is one God and we are his, his community. There is one God and we are all individual citizens of his family. Just the God is up there, we are down here. It's kind of a, a hierarchical view of the oneness of God, that there is only one God and we're just people, right? And, and that's true. And yet Paul uses this metaphor and kind of turns it on its head as he describes this passage. He brings more of an organic view to this thing. He says, picture the church as one body breathed into, experience, into existence by the spirit of the living God. There's a message of hope, the gospel of Jesus Christ that all these people have turned to in faith and baptized into this body and they live under the lordship of this Jesus, under the fatherhood of this one God. So every human being who knows Jesus from every tongue, tribe, nation, age, state, economic class, race, religious background before coming to faith. Whatever it is, they've been grafted into this one body under one Jesus with one faith, one hope, one journey as they walk through life. It's a picture of the church as as one, as one individual organism living in partnership together under the lordship of Jesus Christ, who is our head. If you're looking at the relationships that you might have in your life right now and you're thinking, I don't feel like that's what my life feels like. I feel like I've got some friends. I feel like I've got a community. Maybe you're in a community group or you've got friends from church or you've got work friends who are believers and you have a Bible study every once in a while. You might feel like that's not the vision that I have for this. We're just individuals going through life. How do I make that type of unity that Paul is driving at in this passage? And the interesting thing is Paul doesn't command us to make Unity. In this passage, Paul calls us to keep unity. Look back at at the verse that we read uh, before, Ephesians 4, verse 3. He says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The truth is, the unity that God wants you to have with other believers is, is unity that God has already created. When you became a Christian, you became grafted into this body, you have that unity. Your job is not to fabricate something, your job is to learn how to live in this relationship that God has created for you, grafting you, adopting you into this family, and giving you millions of brothers and sisters. You gotta learn how to lean into that unity and not lose it. I was thinking as I was reading this concept about the marriage relationship. Right, marriage is described very similarly as two individuals who become one flesh. Right? Jesus says when he quotes Moses that when a man and a woman get married, there are no longer two, but they are now one flesh. And whenever I marry a couple, I draw out this concept in our premarital counseling. And we talk about the fact that, that when you walk up the aisle after getting married at that altar, you will not be two anymore. You will become one new believer, one new person on the other side of this ceremony. And so in premarital counseling, we always talk about God will make you one. But the secret to living in marital relationship is learning how to live as one. How to live in this relationship that God has supernaturally created. How to love your wife as Christ loved the church. How to submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ in everything. How to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. How to humbly serve and live compassionately. All the things that Paul draws out in Ephesians chapter 4 in the context of your couplehood as man and wife in the marriage relationship. And it's interesting in Ephesians 4, he takes this analogy and gives it to the church itself and says, as one community, that's what you need to learn how to do is live as one with your brothers and sisters in Christ in the context of the local church. It's interesting, we we don't really think about that a lot. Look at people who come to our church and think, but they're so different than me. They have different political views than me, right? If you've been on Facebook this week, you've probably noticed that, right? There are people in my community who have uh, different backgrounds than me. They have different passions than me. They've got kids. I don't have kids. They're married. I'm not married. I'm a single person. I don't wanna get married or I haven't found, whatever it is, right? Everyone's so different. How can we possibly find unity? And I think what Paul is trying to draw out here is that the things that make us one are, are much more numerous and much more weighty than the things that, that keep us apart. If you're looking at somebody in the church and thinking, why would I ever hang out with that person? They're so different. Paul says, let's remember how the same you are. You both have a story of meeting Jesus Christ. You both have a life where you were far from him and then you came to know him and were transformed by his spirit. You both have his spirit living in you. You both went through the same baptism and were baptized into the family of God. You both live your life on the same journey with the same hope, with the same relationship, with the same Holy Spirit. You are both striving for the same thing. You are both going to spend eternity together in heaven. So start living as one now because the spirit of God has made you one in an inextricable, unchangeable, never-ending way. I remember when I, I was in seminary, they threw us into this small group with people and and we sat down this first week and I'm looking around the room, my wife and I, and all the people were so different from us. <laughs> they came from different uh, backgrounds, some were missionaries before seminaries, some were young people who had just gotten married, some were old and had older kids, some had been Christians for a long time, some were new to the faith, and we start talking about our views and things, and we realize, like, these people are so different from us. And the question came up, how are we ever going to turn this into something beautiful? Because As much as it's true that God has made us one, as much as it's true that we have more in common than what separates us, the hard reality is in real life, what Paul's talking about here, most of us have not experienced. Most of us have Christian friends, but there's something missing in that friendship. It feels like the thing that's most important to us is not existing in the context of our relationship. I had a conversation with a friend of mine recently where we talked about this very thing. We said, man, we've known each other for six years, and yet the thing that is most important to both of us, Jesus, never comes up. Why is it that we never pray when we're together? Why is it that we never talk about the things that God is teaching us? Why is it that this thing that is so important to us and binds us together never becomes the content of our relationship? Why does it seem like we're just normal friends when... when, in terms of what God has made us, we are, we're brothers. We are literal adopted brothers into the family of God. Why is it that our relationship is missing this thing that's supposed to be so beautiful and dynamic and life-changing? Now, we asked a question earlier, maybe we'll ask a different question as we start talking about uh, this topic, and that's this, how do you activate God's grace in your Christian relationships so that he can do a mighty work through your community? How do you lean into that? We know we can't make community, God has made community. We're called to keep community, but what is our part in making a beautiful relationship with other believers possible? You know, I love looking at this passage because you see this parallel where this word one comes up so many times, then finally Paul changes the tone a little bit and starts talking about something specific. He says in verse seven, but to each one, grace has been given as God has apportioned it as each one of us within the Christian community as individuals has received some portion of grace that God has called us to use to help maintain the unity in the body of Christ and he goes on to give this analogy that's probably supposed to draw us back to Moses who goes up on mount Sinai and comes down with the gift of the tablets for God's people he says that's like Jesus who ascended into heaven and he gave gifts to the church He gave the apostles to the church. He gave the prophets to the church. He gave the evangelists to the church. He gave the pastors and teachers to the church. He gave these gifts to the church to equip his people, Paul says, for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ." I think as we look through this whole paragraph here and kind of boil it down to one thing, what I see is that God wants to transform our community through you. We all have a part to play. You have a part to play. You've got grace that God has given you that he wants you to use to build this type of relationship that Paul says is fulfilling the mandate of your calling on planet Earth. Right, I know you might push back and be like, no, 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 he said apostles and prophets and pastors, right? He's talking about you, Danny, not me. But I want to draw your attention that as he keeps moving through this passage, he starts narrowing it down and saying so that each one of us plays a part, right? Look at what he says, uh, where is it? He says in verse 16, from him, Jesus, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I love the way the New American Standard uh, version of the Bible translates this. They, They say the whole body causes the growth of the body. Each part of the body has been given this portion of grace that God wants them to dispense to build up the body of Christ. All right, that means that if you're breathing and you're a Christian, God will give grace to you that he wants you to use to build up this community into this vision that Paul is giving us, All right? Maybe it's a classic gift of grace, like teaching or encouragement, right? Or uh, having a word from the Lord for someone, right? Or offering prayers, right? It also could be giving. We look at different lists in the Bible of gifts of grace that God gives to us. Sometimes it's financial. There's someone in your life who needs resources and God gives you a portion of resources so that you might. Hand it over to them. Sometimes God puts a burden on your heart, a burden for prayer that he wants you to lift back up to him to affect someone's life. Sometimes God puts a burden of encouragement, a gift of his grace that he wants you to give to someone to help build them up in their relationship with Christ. Sometimes God's spirit leads you into a hard conversation to sit down and share hard truth with someone and that is a gift of grace that you can give to someone to build them up and start building this vision of unity in community. I love what Paul says in Romans chapter one where he says, I long to see you so that I might give to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. God gives grace to each of us that he wants us to dispense to others to build a beautiful community where we all are growing in faith together. So I'll ask the question again, and I'll give you some some tools you can use to to work on this this week. Start writing this stuff down. Question, here's the big question. What is your vision for life-giving Christian community in 2021? What's your vision? Life-giving Christian community, right? You don't have to answer it now. Maybe it's not a sentence. I would love for each of us to take some time this week, almost like a New Year's resolution, but deeper, and wrestle with this question. What's your vision for life-giving Christian community in 2021? But if you need some other questions that are going to help you form the answer to this big question, I'll give you three more. Number one, when it comes to powerful, life-changing relationships, what do you want? Right? Jesus would ask this question all the time. What do you want? What is it that you desire? Right? In that article that Donald Miller wrote that I referred to earlier, he says that every big vision starts with a hero who has a desire. Every story is fueled by someone who wants something. So what do you want out of your relationships? What is God's burden on your heart for Christian community? What do you want? Second question, Uh, when you accomplish this vision, how will you know? Right? We all start with this burden, but it always ends with a finish line. right? If, if you've got a New Year's resolution, you're going to run a marathon. Right? The vision is you're coming through the tape at the end of that marathon. How will you know when you've gotten there? Spend some time with the Lord, with the text, dreaming about what your life will look like when you have this type of community that God has prescribed for you. We're actually gonna do another sermon in a couple weeks talking on the opposite side of unity to the diversity of relationships God has for us in our lives. So I'll be part of that too. But what is the vision? What will it look like when you accomplish it? And then finally, how will, what do you need to get started in this work? What do you need to get started? In Miller's article, he says that every journey has an inciting incident, a moment where the hero gets catapulted into action. So for you, what needs to catapult this thing into action? If you've got a vision for a small group, it'll start with you having a conversation and saying, let's start one, right? If the vision is for you to have an accountability relationship with someone or to really go deeper, the conversation starts with you saying, hey, here's what God's leading me to. Maybe you need to start by having a conversation at the dinner table with your family and saying, this is what I've been wrestling with. What do you guys think? What's that thing that you need to start getting started so that you can make progress towards the vision God has for you? As we look at Ephesians four, there's a couple of questions that come out of this text. This is from a theologian named NT Wright. Kind of drew some similar questions. You can use these in your journey as well. I don't put them on the screen for you or anything, but just think about these questions. NT Wright says, as you think about your role in bringing grace to others, where does your church, where does your community need to grow towards maturity? Where's there immaturity in your church? What gifts has God given to enable this to take place? What, what gifts are there? And third, what challenges, what cunning tricks and false teaching do you need to watch out for? And how can you combat it? There, all of these questions can help you to form a vision for life-giving community in the year to come. I know that for all of us, living in robust, beautiful, dynamic community does not feel like fulfilling God's calling on our lives because it's foreign to so many of us. But if we're gonna take Paul at his word here, uh, we've got to understand that what we're talking about right now, what you're about to go embark on discovering for yourself is part of what God has called you to be about as a follower of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a little vision from the end of this chapter. These are the, the last three verses where Paul gives us a vision of what it looks like on the other side of this thing. We're going to close with this and then I'm going to pray. Paul says, then we will no longer be infants Tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning, cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful seeming, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let's pray together that God would give us vision of the part that he has for us to play in the building up of his body in love. Let's pray.